Clubhouse. Welcome back to the Yellowstone Podcast. This is Sheila. And today joining me, we have Paul from Pod Clubhouse. Hey, Paul. Hi, Sheila. Thanks for having me. No worries. Happy to have you back on the podcast. Uh, Glad to be here. Yeah. So Steph is out this week. Just as uh, life would have it, things just you know pop up and make, uh, make us unavailable for things. But thankfully, we have a deep bench of talent, ready and willing and able to join us today. So um, how was Turkey Day? Turkey Day was uh, two turkey days back to back. Yikes. That's a lot of turkey days. <laughs> yep. Yep. A lot of family close by. And so we. That's good, though. That's how that's we do good. it. Yep. It was good. And uh, my football team won. And, and uh, yeah. So, how was your turkey day? Uh, mine was great. We're actually traveling. So, I am, uh, I am on the road. So, if I sound different, I apologize. I might sound better. I might sound worse. But uh, either way, I am. I took all my gear with me because the Yellowstone train will not stop for anything. So I packed up all my gear, my microphone, my laptop, my Yellowstone connection, and we traveled 400 miles north, uh, northwest of where I normally am. So I take it that you have been keeping up with Yellowstone. Totally. Yep. All in. How are you finding this season so far? Well, I think it still has the same the same draw for me that it that it always has, which is that family dynamic, the will they won't they with the ranch, how long can they keep this going? The tried and true plot is of or plots, I should say, of things like Jamie and Beth come back into this one. We were kind of wondering all season when Summer would show back up and so here she is. And uh, yeah, I didn't realize like Jamie hadn't told about the baby. Yet. So I'm 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 generally happy with this season. I'm 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 impatient for more. Yeah. So actually, last episode, um, Steph and I were like, so we don't think that anybody else knows about Jamie's baby, and we were trying to remember the dynamics around it. And this episode answered that for us. No, they don't know about the baby, but they now will. That's part of the drama of this show that makes it so freaking watchable is I don't know that Beth doesn't recognize the mutually assured destruction aspect of the game that she's playing with Jamie. Yeah. He's killed a couple people, or at least one. <laughs> um, two. <laughs> with his bare hand. Right. Yeah. Two shot, for sure. Shot one, choked another. And yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, got a f he's got a few stops at the train station. Beth might have it in her, but we haven't seen it. We have seen him kill some people. And he got he got kind of close to like, I don't care if I do in this episode. Yeah. Yeah, so we'll, yeah, we'll talk about that. But I also wanted to mention last episode, Steph and I were talking about the preview of 1883 that we got in the very first episode back in season four of Yellowstone. Yeah. And I was thinking that we might have hot, like had to this point a glimpse of 1923 before it airs, sort of like woven into the fabric of the current timeline. I, I think Yellowstone is one of the shows that really does a flashback well. They show us a little vignette from the past and then what the relevance then is in the current timeline. But I also really liked how 
1883 setup in season four was for us. You know, I was just hoping that we would get some sort of a a glimpse of, you know, Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren in action before December 18th, I believe it is. Like we're about three weeks away from that premiere at this date. And I guess my question to you is, is the Yellowstone juggernaut big enough that they don't need to lure in viewers for this new show? Or do you think that we're going to get a prolonged glimpse maybe closer to the premiere? I think the juggernaut should not take for granted that they will just take viewers here and there. You know, when we're not podcasting, we have normal jobs just like everyone else. <laughs> <out there. laughs> and and uh, probably the only thing that I like to talk about at work besides work, and I don't even like to talk about work, is what I watch on TV. And when I bring up Yellowstone, I get some hits, but when I talk about 1883, then it starts to get a little hairy. Like people aren't like even fuzzy. Yeah, they don't. They aren't even aware that it existed. And so 1923, I don't think they should. Paramount should take for granted that they will just bring viewers over. Because if I recall, wasn't 1883? Was it one of those deals where it was like split, where it was like first on the paid Paramount channel and then aired on the TV Paramount channel? I don't recall. I think you're right. I think maybe the first two episodes were available like right after Yellowstone, those first two weeks. And then when it flipped over to 2022, it was like exclusively available on Paramount+. Plus, And no longer on the Paramount Network. And that's also, I think, what's confusing about the Yellowstone platform. I mean, I know we need to talk about this episode, but the Paramount Network versus Peacock streaming for the prior seasons versus Paramount Plus for the spinoffs. It's a little confusing. It (laughs) is. It is. And for us as the podcasting platform that we want to support people in in their fandom and viewership... It's t- we can lose track of where to direct people to watch what. It's tough. It's tough I, to recruit other watchers for sure. Just all you got to do is just pay for this extra channel. Oh man, another channel. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, hey, there's Black Friday deals. I've been seeing commercials all day ah, for yeah. different streaming services, like ninety nine dollars for the first couple of months. Uh, I'm sorry, ninety nine cents for the first couple of months. I'm like, oh, hello. I think Roku is selling a bunch of their the channels that they support that way. But yeah. Before we get into this episode, I have one more question for you. Um, We actually had a listener comment um, following episodes one and two that we got as episode three was being recorded. So we didn't get a chance to talk about it in the last episode. But James was a listener who wanted to remind everyone that Garrett Randall was the one who put the hit out on the Duttons and feels that Jamie this season will turn on the Duttons and there will be a straw that breaks the camel's back, he says. I just want to get your your thoughts on this. What do you think about that? Because we've kind of been hinting that we think Jamie is ripe for some sort of striking out this season. And I feel like this episode in particular was a really great time for this comment to rear itself. Yeah. Because of the nature in which Jamie's um, story arc is taking. So I want to get your take on that. How do you think Jamie's arc is playing out this season so far? And what do you think about, you know, the tie-in to Garrett? Overall, Beth is making it too easy for him to want to betray at least her. And if there's collateral damage, including John, then that's just the way it's going to go. Because he's going to get his nerve up at some point with the way she deals with him and 
what she thinks she has over him. And yeah, she does have some things over him, but he's thinking with his he's his dick this week. A hundred percent. He's like, and we know that that's gotten him into trouble before, so you know, yeah. only a matter of time before it happens again. Well, one thing leads to another, right? It's um, the thinking <laughs> with his dick got the got the car seat in the car. Then Beth found that out, and then she is making it super easy for him to want to blow up. John's behavior toward him is more impersonal than before. I mean, he was always sort of treated like an employee, but now it's it's not. I mean, it's just very businesslike between the two. There's almost no familial connection between them anymore. It yeah, feels like. It, it, I mean, it seems that way. So the various write-ups that that occur on Yellowstone have always pegged Jamie as the family Fredo. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. so very. It's a very good parallel. It is. Uh, it's, it's not that Fredo didn't have his talents and abilities, although Fredo was quite a bit less able <laughs> than than Jamie. <laughs> but still, ultimately. He didn't have the fortitude to um, stay completely loyal to the family. I think that's a good parallel. And it's just it's very interesting, the dynamic, too. Like there's four children in the Corleone family. There's four children in the Dutton family. It just feels like a good comparison based on what we've seen of him so far. And you said the word fortitude. And I, I think that's a really good way to describe Jamie's, you know, his lacks. He lacks a lot of things. And I think fortitude is one of the things that he lacks. And and his own conviction sometimes. He gets tripped up by his own ambition and his own sense of feeling betrayed. And, and that's where he really runs into trouble. And I just feel like this episode, again, in particular, is laying a really good foundation for him to be very Fredo-like. Well, he's an emotional mess, which is uh, a, a contrast to Fredo in that Jamie is super able when he is able to rely on his his training, his his uh, degrees, his brains, everything that he knows about the law, you know, that's his comfort zone in a way that no one else can really match him. That's where he loves to operate. And it's a, com- right. <laughs> it's a complete contrast. Smart. Yes, exactly. He lacks, he... he lacks Beth street smarts. If, if there was, if there was a Dutton that is as street smart and as book smart as the two of them put together, that would be an impossible person to come up against. Although Beth, you know, to her credit, she has a lot of like book smarts too. And she also has those street smarts, but she gets blinded by rage a little too often. And she kind of loses that focus. I mean, the, the, all all the Dutton kids that we know about, we don't really know Lee that well because we, <laughs> alas, where we, we didn't really know him. But the three that we do know are all suffering from some inability to, like, really fit in anywhere else. Um, Because Jamie seems to be constantly searching for something to fit in with. And when he figured out that it wasn't really his dad because of the not knowing he was adopted aspect of it, he's just, like, been kind of lost that whole time. That's why he latched on to Garrett, you know, because he gave him a, a, a port in that storm. But the other two kids, Casey and Beth... I don't imagine Beth has a lot of friends, you know? No. And with Casey living part of his uh, time on the reservation, part here, part there, um, it feels like he's never really completely found. I mean, he's never going to fit in on the reservation no matter how he, how long he lives there, how many kids he has with Monica. It doesn't. He's not going to be quite 100%. He'll never be accepted there, yeah. Not 100%. I mean, yes, to an extent. To an extent, sure. But, you know, it's one of those things you got to be born into. And so... 
I think that's something that they all have in common. All three kids is that, and if the ranch isn't the place where they can find that acceptance, then they're not. <laughs> then they have trouble finding it anywhere else. I think this is a really good conversation to set us up for all the things that happened this episode. This is episode number four, "Horses in Heaven," and it was uh, directed and shot by Christina Alexandra Voros. Uh, she also directed the previous one, and she has a history of directing episodes on Yellowstone, eighteen eighty three, and in a funny Montana coincidence, Big Sky. Oh, really? Yep. This is quite her forte, then. Yeah, she has you know a few. TV directing credits, but she is a much more well-known cinematographer and has an Emmy nomination for shooting an episode of 1883 last season as cinematographer. We've been starting off with Monica and Casey just the last couple of episodes only just because it's emotionally traumatizing and we just kind of want to get it out of the way, <laughs> which is okay. probably not the best way to go about it. But at the same time, it's just... It's just such a moving storyline that it deserves the early attention, I guess, when we're all still fresh as we're talking about this. So why do you suppose they did not invite the family? I think it's a two-part answer. I think part of it is that it's a Native tradition. It's a Native American tradition. And it was alluded to, I think, in either the prior episode that Casey's family may not be able to attend and Casey himself may not be able to attend. And I got the sense that like it needed to be blessed, quote unquote, by the elders to, in order to have that happen because it was a question out there. I think that's part of the answer. I think part two of that answer, that this is Casey choosing his path. And, and I, I keep coming back to his vision because I feel like the end of season four, when he says it's the end of us and he has got to make a choice, when we learn in this season that he has to make a choice, I think he's choosing to step away from the Duttons. And I think part of it is that it's a Native traditional ceremony, so outsiders are not welcome. They won't understand the rituals and, and, and all of that. But I also think part of it, too, is his own desire to distance himself from the family. Interesting. He's done that, but yes, maybe quite successfully to a, to a certain extent. Perhaps running off and joining the military was running off, whereas this is more like shaking his hand and being like, "I got to do what's better for my wife," and that's that's mm -hmm. a totally different way way to handle that that yeah. situation. I was curious what you thought though, because different people did show up, mostly from the reservation. I guess the cowboys took off by that point. Yeah, they didn't seem to be in the background. I think they helped out with the grave digging, and I think that they just continued on with the business of their day. Hiding wolf bodies. Uh... Well, that's already been done. Like, the, you know, they're, they're where no one's ever going to find them. They they uh, they mafiaed those wolves, man. <laughs> so, like, Steph and I had talked last episode that if Casey has to choose one of these paths from his vision— and he's stepped away from his role as the livestock commissioner. This is kind of like a follow-up question to what you asked. What is your take on Casey's decision here? In the sense that I'm still dissecting his vision and these two paths, and I'm trying to understand with the little that we've been given and sort of my wild imagination, what is your take on Casey's path? Does the path with the Duttons that he's currently divorcing himself from, does that spell the end? Or is it not as black and white as I'm trying to make it to be? Like, is, is path B the one that he's taking, the unknown path, 
that he has to forge his own way the way that he needs to go where it doesn't spell the end of us and the path that he's on with the Duttons spell the end of us. Well, I wouldn't at all be surprised if given how the pacing is going this season, like John reminded us, I've only been governor a month or no, a week. Sorry a week, to say. yeah. A week. It seems like their days are much longer than my days. Absolutely. It w- I would need so much Prozac if I was a Dutton because of the stress <laughs> level on a daily basis. I would need all kinds of uh, stimulation around me to calm me down, white noise and weighted blankets and you know, all the things. <laughs> <laughs> Just to get through Monday. Given that time warp, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't hear something more concrete about that path question until like the end of the season you know, some pivotal moment where Casey does have to make this big choice. However, at this point, he's only got the one grandson. I don't know that you can get completely away from John, even with a nice cordial handshake. I mean, he gave him back the badge and he didn't hand it right back because he did see the logic and like, I need someone in this job, you know, until I get a replacement. And P.S., even if you don't go to work, I'll still pay you. (laughs) <laughs> to borrow <laughs> another Godfather quote, just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. That's a Michael, though. It's kind of a mixed <laughs> metaphor, but that's still. Definitely, that's definitely a Godfather thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyhow, to dodge your question completely, um, I, I think his choice, it can't be as simple as a do this and the ranch is finished or maybe it does maybe you're right maybe maybe it does because you know caroline has this theory that tate will inherit the ranch at some point and just give it back to uh, the local reservation well wasn't that the prophecy the seventh generation that's what he represents yeah yeah so that's the uh, that's her her theory so prophecies and and visions are all super up to interpretation right in terms of what you see versus what it means Casey continuing to ally with John and John's whole, you know, mission is to keep the ranch forever. But if the ranch continues down those family lines and winds up with Tate and Caroline's right, then is that the end of quote unquote us being the ranch or the Dutton dynasty legacy? Or is it some other meaning? I just love how nebulous it is, and it was just enough of a carrot to dangle that we're still talking about it, and what does it mean, and what's it gonna, what's happening, and who's going to do what. And every clue that we get, it's like, well, what does this mean? And so I, I think it's really intelligent story writing because it's allowing your imagination to kind of run wild with it. I sure hope Taylor knows what it means. I hope so, too. I have a lot riding on this. <laughs> I'm very invested. You know, it's not totally uncommon for TV writers to do something very bold like that, but not have any idea (laughs) what it means when they do it. I call it Stephen Kinging. It's not very nice (laughs) because sometimes like he doesn't follow through on the ending the way that I'm like, okay, this this story has built up so much. And yeah, um, yeah, you know, the 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 kids have sex in the sewer. (laughs) (laughs) right so then the ending doesn't always kind of like leave me satisfied so i i want this to be a satisfying conclusion for the way in which it's been built up between the ceremony of the vision and then the i call it the aftermath of it 
I'm excited to see where it goes, but I'm hoping that what you're saying too happens, that we have a logical conclusion to it that is satisfying. The craftsmanship and the writing and all that is so well done that, yeah, I'd be heartbroken if if it just cheesed out. <laughs> right. If it just like they just stopped mentioning it or they, you know, they stopped talking about it. But, oh, I wanted to talk to you about two things about this this little part that happens with the burial. First of all, it was just so awful to 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 watch the little casket as they're preparing it and, and lowering that. I just and then John sitting with. Monica afterwards, after everyone has dissipated, and telling her this story. So we didn't know about Peter before. John had a brother, Peter. Steph and I would be talking about how we were bawling our eyes out during this this little you know story that he tells her. And I wanted to ask you: Do you think that this is a way for John to regain Monica's trust? They've moved out. They're off the ranch. They're not quite living on the reservation either. They're kind of stuck in no man's land. Is this a way for John to get close to Monica to gain her trust? Well, not in a manipulative way. No, I didn't mean in a manipulative way, but I think as a way to get close to her because I feel that Tate is a missing part of his life right now. I think sharing that, I mean, uh, I don't cry about TV, but that got me as close as I get. Uh, I've, I've never heard better words put yes. to the idea of losing a, a child so young. I've ne- I mean, that was moving stuff. Yes, that was very well done. And it, it tugged at all the right heartstrings. Because it wasn't really hammed up. It wasn't cheesy. It wasn't words I'd heard before. It, f- it, it wasn't words I'd heard before. And I think that's what really got me that I was just like, I kind of sat up and I was like, oh, God. And then you think about what those words mean and, you know, just living this perfect life and it was only 18 hours and this is what your son had too. And it's just, it's a very cathartic story and it's a very, it's one of those moments where it's like, I, I know your pain better than you think. And I think that's a really good way for him to open the door back to talking with Monica because they've had a couple of frank conversations over the years. But she's gone through some bad shit at his house too. And that's part of the reason why I I think that he's trying to get back closer so that he can regain some sort of a relationship with Tate because I feel like that's never been really addressed since he's the end of season two. Oh no. I mean, they were strangers last season. Yes. And where they had been so close prior. And I feel like this is like something that's missing in John's life, the humility and the love that is associated with a grandfather and a grandchild. As I sit with in the house with my my son and his grandfather, you know, just seeing that relationship and watching this again today. And I was just like, damn, I was like, John's really missing out. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, you know, and then, like you said, like, it's not manipulative, but I think it's sincere that he's honored that they named their son John after him and telling her the story. It's a way to start rebuilding that bridge. Yeah. And I did happen to see that Papa Felix, uh, Monica's grandfather, was there at the funeral because Steph and I had been wondering, like, where is he? <laughs> we haven't <laughs> seen him and we were genuinely concerned about Papa Felix. Yeah. Um, they had a nice delegation there. And then one other thing I wanted to mention to you, it's actually two things. One about Beth, when her and John are watching this ceremony play out, Beth mentions that she wants her ashes scattered. And there's been a lot of death and a lot of talk about death around John so far, this the, the, very early in this season. Is this some sort of like foreshadowing? I say this because like I feel like we might lose a character this season, not necessarily someone else dying, like the, we lost the baby, but we didn't know the baby 
But I feel like we might lose somebody in the sense of like Casey and Monica pulling away. So I'm just asking, like with Beth saying that and talking about a child predeceasing their parent again, you know, John's already lost Lee. What do you think about all of the death that is surrounding John so far this season between his horse, you know, Beth talking about wanting her ashes scattered, naming the baby John, having the now he's standing in his family graveyard. I also had the same heebie-jeebie alert when she mentioned her own ashes and the foreshadowing that it might represent. Something tells me if we start losing more Dutton kids, though, we're going to be looking at the end of the show. However, the way that Jamie and Beth are with each other now, could a hospitalization occur? (laughs) Maybe. Well, you know, we came close this episode later on. We came very close, yeah. Yeah, I think you're on to something. I mean, we've lost Lee, but we've lost a couple minor characters. Um, Villains tend to die. Yeah, they kind of get their own due. Yeah, and uh, Sarah might get that treatment, played by Don Oliveri, who also starred briefly in 1883. (gasps) Yes, I'm like, where is her face from? (laughs) Yeah, she was the suicidal sister. That's right. Wow, hair and makeup really does wonders for characters and changing them around. She was not likable on that show either. I don't know. I kind of like her. Oh, do you? I... In, in like a dastardly villain kind of a way. I mean, she's... Um, uh... We'll talk about her later. All right. All right. <laughs> so the other question I had about this um, this graveyard scene was about Rainwater. He's been feeling a little spurned by John so far in his governor in the early days of his governorship. But I feel like there is some symbolism here with Rainwater trying to get the upper hand with John in John's family's graveyard. Again, back to this whole like death swirling around John. Well, here's the thing. Thomas is a politician. Oh, 100%. And his position is under threat. And John is very much not. I don't know, even know if he can be a, a politician. The, the preview for whatever's happening next week didn't look like he was doing very gubernatorial things. Oh, yeah. This is not happening in the state house in Helena whatsoever. <laughs> and uh, But Rainwater, he's not getting a callback, so he's got to make his play. And there's something that he wants John to see. Or maybe it's that he wants his people to see him with John. I think that's it. I think he wants his well i mean he makes the plain statement saying you show up at the reservation to show you care i mean you're throwing down the gauntlet there mm-hmm. it's like them's fighting words <laughs> but it's also that's a very powerful move like you get this the power, most powerful person in your state to come to your office and your reservation and do a photo op because i'm sure that that's going to happen because he needs to protect rainwater rainwater needs to protect his position because it, it's definitely under threat angela has made it very clear that she's out to get him whether or not she's the one who's after his job personally or just to get him out of the way remains to be seen. But I definitely feel that Rainwater is also using this low moment in John's life of burying his grandson to his advantage. And it, it that felt a little icky to me, but he had to strike while that iron was hot, you know, to keep the cliches going here. They shook hands, which was nice. He, you know, I, yes. I know it's very... It's that kind of event where you would do that unless you were really dicks to each other. Uh, but, yeah, yeah. But they've had a 
frenemy relationship over the years. The last dealing they had was Rainwater doing John a solid. And mm-hmm. and plus, he's been stepping in with, with Monica and Casey where, you know, you might look at that as Casey's dad and, and have some feelings that there's this other father figure-esque doing your kind of thing there. But what he's giving, John can't exactly give because it's what Monica needs out of it, really. But still, that doesn't mean that it wouldn't still stir things up in John to see all that. Or he might even recognize someone's got to do that stuff. They clearly need that older figure helping them. And maybe I owe Rainwater something for that. That's a good assessment. It's a possibility. We'll see when they, when he comes to the reservation next week, right? Right. Well, I get the feeling that this meeting has to happen sooner rather than later. Well, this this season's clicking along, right? Well, you you've mentioned that there's 14 episodes, so we're not as far in as we are used to being. Yes, we typically would have been. We'd be like, oh my god, we're already a third of the way through the season, right? <laughs> Where we're well, we're we're still we're st- we haven't quite hit cruise control yet on the season. It's still pivotal moments that are being laid here. So I feel like this season has room to flex a little more with 14 episodes behind it. Yep. So John being at the funeral, I think, is a, is a nice segue for the rest of John's story arc for this episode. As Steph and I have talked about in prior episodes, he is struggling as a governor. He's not, as you said earlier, he's not the politician. But I like sort of the destruction that he does in the early part of his day. And then by noon, he's having lunch with Linnell and she's setting him straight. I like the fact that she tells him that Montana is a business and he's the CEO. I think she's laying it down for him in a way that is digestible for John, because I think he understands the running of a business as he does the running of his ranch. He's the CEO of his ranch, and this is what he needs to do. But I just laughed for the entire part that he was talking about the educator's luncheon and, and, and all of the trappings that he had to have known were coming with this governor's role. That he's just like, that's bullshit. I'm not doing that. That's bullshit. I'm doing... And you're all fired. All through these things, I just laughed. I don't know what your take was on it, but I just thought it was it was hilarious. And the policy advisor, Stanley, who was sitting in the governor's chair in the cabinet meeting, was just ripe for John to pounce. There was no way that this cabinet meeting was getting out without at least him being fired. I didn't necessarily expect the entire <laughs> cabinet to be given their pink slip by 930 in the morning. I was actually kind of wondering if this is what Jesse, the body Ventura's first week (laughs) in Minnesota looked like. No, he would just body slam them on the way out. I think that would be more apt. Just, you know, an outsider coming in, not knowing anything, um, not having hired anybody or even realizing that there were these positions that needed hiring. Like a press secretary. He, he was asking who his crisis manager was of, of Clara, who I feel both a great amount of respect and much trepidation for. I hope that she has a good support system at home, you know, to envelop her at the end of the day after dealing with John all day. I have my, my radar blipping on Clara a little bit because she's... Oh, in what way? Well, she seems loyal. You're saying it with a lot of weight behind it. Yeah, well, I mean, he's going to do something in front of her, and it's going to be where she's going to either be on Team Dutton or not. I don't know what it's going to be, but he does so much, (laughs) you know, talks about so much. It's hard to keep up. (laughs) Yeah, that something's going to happen. 
and she stands to be a, a weak link because she is an outsider and Beth is, like you said earlier, impulsive and been unreliable because you can't count on her to, to keep an even keel in, in a given situation or be appropriate or those Not other things. Not be on a drunk bender. Right. Yeah. I mean, she is highly intelligent. She is sly. She is cunning. She is she ruthless. Can, she can think several steps ahead of people. Those are all great things. But if she gets into a fist fight with you at the meeting or with the person you're talking to, then, you know, all the productive things that could have happened are now gone. And all of those things have happened in some way, shape or form with Beth. So you can't necessarily say when she's going to do what. No. So a fist fight in a boardroom is not outside the realm of possibility with Beth. She may not just save it for the bars in Bozeman, you know? <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so that's when I look at her and she's so young and she's got her whole career ahead of her. I don't know how they didn't show us how she got this job. She just is one of those people that appeared and kind of like the driver. John didn't want to risk that that the things that they talk about in his car would just occur on some rando's ears. Um, right. Even though the the driver was a rando to beginning to at the beginning, at least he's the same rando every time. That's actually a really good point for us to kind of keep an eye on Clara and just, you know, nobody's there unintentionally in the Taylor Sheridan world. So it'll be very interesting to see what your instinct with her and how that plays out, like what that is. Well, and so many other people in his universe have something that they owe him one way or the other, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it was the old sheriff. Yeah, Donnie. Poor Donnie. R.I.P. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, the new sheriff, he's kind of a problem. But uh, <laughs> the old sheriff. Yeah. Or I feel like he's incorruptible. We'll, we'll I think see. that's right. I think that's right. Or or, or uh, the local judges or the various commissioners, they all either owe him something or he'd be happy to get them something to put them in a spot where they owe him something. Yeah. Clara doesn't fit that at all. Or she's just nobody. And I've talked way too long about nobody. Nah, I feel like you're you're probably onto something because, you know, they've got 14 episodes. Why not have a little Clara spinoff? <laughs> <laughs> right. She has her own ranch. Right. Yes, but we need a backstory on Clara now. Now that we've, you know, kind of dived into her psyche a little bit, I think we need a little backstory. Like, you know. Well, she's a performer. She's doing well. You know, she's she's been competent. She's the only person that, that has stuck around week one <laughs> without getting Right. On, getting... She's lasted a whole week. She yeah. has not been fired. And I just enjoy the look of bewilderment on her face every time John does something very John-like and not very governor or gubernatorial-like. Yeah, well, that's so many things. It's just the look on her face. It's just like, how do I want to respond to this? Because <laughs> she does. She has this pause when she's looking at him and you can just see the wheels turning. I liked her when she knew the 1.6 million figure off the top of her head and rattled it off kind of unabashedly without really looking around the room like these are all the people who represent that number. She seemed very Team John at that point, and I'm okay with yes. that. Yes, and that's also a very calculating kind of a move in a way. If you're if you're able to reduce a conference room table full of bureaucrats, right, yeah. to a number, you're speaking John's language now. Yeah. Very interesting. We'll have to keep an eye, a closer eye on Clara. I was just amazed that she stuck around for a full seven days. It's been tough. But she's been to it the ranch, been. you know, so maybe she's... She's oh. been to the ranch. So, and I think she also has a little understanding of John from being there. I think that's what, uh, one of the things she said. Okay, so these wolves and these park officials and these U.S. Fish and Wildlife... This is a big deal, apparently. I mean, 
in our world, maybe wolves are not uh, <laughs> such a crisis, but apparently up there, it is a big deal. Listen, I've seen a Yellowstone wolf, not, not up close, but like from a distance, and they are a spectacle. They are they're everything you expect a Yellowstone wolf to be. The one I saw was feeding on an elk. I'd, I'd want to see them from afar. Uh, yeah, there was a great, a great deal of a field in between us and a road and my car. <laughs> I was standing on the other side of the car and uh, my husband was safely inside the car taking pictures. I was outside the car, Dukes of Hazard style, out the window, taking a picture of the wolf and the elk because I'm a city girl, so we don't see these things often. But apparently the 35 cars that were also stopped around this wolf feeding on an elk were also equally as uh, impressed with this Yellowstone wolf. So the story that the park official is telling John about the map in which the wolves were traveling as he was telling it I could tell from the look on his face that he didn't even believe the line of bullshit that he was delivering to John mm-hmm. so um, I'm just wondering where where is this storyline with the wolves going it could be adding up to a big test for summer she is rolling onto his staff somehow as a as an advisor for the environment. Right, for the environmental side of that, but the house. We thought maybe she was like a social justice type that was like just in it for the fight. But there's a chance that she's actually a true believer and believes everything that she does is, is exactly the right way to do things for the environment. I also think that she has some educational cred too behind her in – I. I'm trying to remember back to season four. Um, I believe that she rattled off some credentials that she had too, and I think that there were some, you know, some chops behind her too. Yeah, I don't know what they are, but if you said like Vassar or something, I wouldn't be totally like, what? No, right, right. Um, but if she is working for John and and she has to confront whoever the park rangers told him about that would be coming after him about these wolves. But she agrees with them rather than John. That's a big deal. That that could be a very dramatic point because even though she owes her, her freedom to him, I don't know that that would be enough for her to compromise, you know, her morals and convictions on, on the subject if she agreed with whoever is in charge of the wolves or is going to be representing the wolves. <laughs> in, in the, in the, I'm imagining like the wolf attorney walking yeah. in. <laughs> exactly. That's why I think that might be going because they are making a big deal out of this. They got summer out of jail and there's always, always tests when it comes to who are you loyal to? Right. And then, you know, begging the question of how are you loyal to this person? And is there going to be some sort of conflict of interest because she's also sharing a house and a bed with him? So, And any consequences you know. if you're not loyal? Exactly. Right. So there's like a supervised situation going on, or a, a conditional release of, that she has a supervised release for six months and he's her supervisor. Mm-hmm. It just seems a little too all wrapped up into one. That's dangerous shit. He needs to make sure that she comes in a separate car when they go to work. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Yeah. Maybe she goes out like the west entrance leaving at the end of the day and he goes out the front entrance or something and, you know, they swing around and go get her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, she she wears a disguise, some sort, some, <laughs> some vegan friendly disguise. Oh, little leaves on her or something. Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah, she's she's going to figure big into this season. 
Definitely. And, you know, we had been, you know, teasing out her return because it was mentioned in the very first episode of the season recap of season four. We're like, well, where is she? Like, we're figuring the timeline of Monica's pregnancy was kind of telling us that this was about eight months after the end of season four. So we're like, all right, so she should be getting out quite soon. Not realizing that he was going to flex the clemency arm on her. But, you know, here we are. So we will see if Summer's return is a good thing for John. So stay tuned for that. Oh, yeah. I mean, as soon as he brought up hardening and environment in the same episode, it, it all added up <laughs> to, to summer. <laughs> so we were toying. Did you have anything else more on John? Toward the end of the episode when he's on his porch and he's talking to Rip and he mm -hmm. gets the lowdown on the wolves, which P.S. It sounds like those park rangers wanted to give John an out. It's almost like there could have been some way to sort this out earlier if there had been some amount of honesty about it. I think there could have been. On Rip's part, you mean? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, what's done is done, and now they have to, to, to roll with it. But there was d discussions of, like, actual ranch stuff therein presenting us with that four-year-long conflict that I think the governor's mansion is ultimately going to lose is the draw to the ranch and what it needs. Like it made it very clear to me like that for as authoritative as Rip is with the cowboys, he is only the sergeant. Correct. He's not the general. Right. And he made an executive decision here and did not consult the general. So there might be some fallout from that, I suppose. Well, and there are things that Rip considers beyond his authority to do, commit to, or anything. So there's there's handling problems, which he believes is his problem. But there's the whatever is supposed to happen next week that he says, you're going to be here for that, right? And, he, and John's like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be here for that. Sure. Because mm -hmm. then he follows that up with, it's not my place to do whatever that task is. Uh, it was cow branding, the calf branding. They're going to do that at, yes. the, at the Yellowstone. So they went to go and help the other Another ranch cowboys, with yeah. their branding, right, because they were short some cowboys and there was a whole scene about that. Maybe it's some sort of uh, situation where, like, the owner of record has to be there or maybe it's some traditional thing. I'm not exactly sure why John would have to be there, but, but Rip doesn't feel comfortable being the guy. Yeah, but it also seemed like when they had the branding that was going on at the ranch they were helping out on, it seemed to be a very community, family-oriented event. There was food, there was kids playing, there were dogs running around. Well, those dogs were working dogs, but yes. They were, but you know, it just seemed like a big spectacle, I guess is really kind of what I'm getting at. So I don't know if John necessarily needs to be there for it, but I think it just might be like a tradition thing. You know, he comes out and he, you know, kind of glad hands with maybe some of the ranch hands, I, I guess. Not really sure, but I, I guess there's some meaning behind it for Rip. While we're talking about Rip, I guess this is probably a good time to ask you this question. Because hmm. while he's talking to the cowboy Delbert at the, the branding, Delbert was congratulating Rip on, you know, sort of John's score on squashing that airport. But Rip, you know, he's kind of a cynic here. He said that he he knows that this isn't the end of the land grab at the ranch. I wanted to ask you, like, what is Rip seeing about this airport project and the ranch that we're not? And what I mean by this is from the very first episode this season, when he said to Beth at the inauguration party that John's going to lose the ranch. And then we also had a listener question last week about Rip being so angry at Carter because he might be stressed at all the changes that are going on with John not around. 
So I want to ask your opinion on that. What do you think is, is going on with Rip here? An easy explanation might be that, that he's just gotten very jaded with needing to head off all of these efforts to take over the ranch year after year after year, you know, diverting rivers, throwing construction equipment down ravines. Taking out a militia. Shaking up a rattlesnake in an igloo cooler at a guy. Yeah. It's still wow, one of the coolest scenes ever. That um, is, yes. I would agree. <laughs> that, is, that is a sexy scene. <laughs> I mean, if I not ever have for, to take a guy, not for Rourke, out, but you know, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it gives me some ideas just in case I ever find my oh, enemies. Oh shit, man! Yeah. I'm not going to cross you. No. You've seen too much Yellowstone. Exactly. <laughs> and Godfather, so you know where to hide all the bodies. Exactly right. So that's an easy answer, though, that he's just seen it so many times. But the way that conversation went, and tonight, or with this episode, how and he was. It's not like he wanted to test John, but it's almost like he tested John by saying, you're going to be there for that, right? I think he's putting a lot of emphasis on John needing to divert his attentions away from the ranch and seeing maybe his own capabilities, as extensive as they are, still being very tactically minded. And he knows he can't strategically save the ranch. He knows that he can do the dirty tricks. But that's it. You know, he needs he needs someone to say what to do. He's the sergeant, not the general, like yeah. you said. Yeah. And that's fine. I mean, we uh, I think I'm one of those guys. I, I'm fine doing it. I just need someone to kind of say that needs doing. Right. This is the road you're going to be on and you'll know what to do on that road. Right. Right. So, yeah. I mean, we all have our, our places in the universe and, that, and maybe that's his. And, and seeing where John may not be there to steer the, the large tanker that is uh, the, the Dutton Ranch, there's nothing else he can do. He, he can only do so much. I was thinking more along the lines of just the personal loss of John, because this has been like this constant father figure in his life since he was a, a young teenager and now with all of the attention diverted, John's attention being diverted away with the running of the state, that maybe Rip was just feeling the acute loss of this change, this this sea change, if you really will, if in, in his in his life. Rip doesn't feel feelings. He does. <laughs> he has a lot of teeth when he smiles and when he laughs, he has even more teeth. So he does feel feelings. We just don't see them a lot. And when we do, we don't know what to do with them. Neither does Rip. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. He really does. He, he does do feelings well. You know, he was he was awful to Carter when when the horse accident happened, and we can't even talk about it because it was so awful to watch. So I, I just, yeah, I was thinking initially that you know when he said that Rome was burning and he was likening the ranch to this fabled event in history with Nero playing the fiddle as Rome burned and likening the ranch to that. I thought that was a very hard statement on the loss that he's feeling. Like he was just, you know, John was saying that he hadn't been at the ranch for over a month and he hadn't, you know, basically spent a night away from there from the time that he was started running it. That's a very long time. And it's basically all of Rip's life. John has just been this constant. And I just think that he was just missing it. But now that we're getting into this larger quagmire of these wolves and this conversation that you and I have had about him being a sergeant and and maybe stepping out of line without thinking through the ramifications of it. Again, the difference between a tactician versus someone who's versed in strategy, he might have made a misstep and he might be feeling a little bit guilty about those choices now. And maybe that's why he's a little softer 
this episode. Maybe he's he's you know felt the sting a little mm. um, when Fish and Wildlife came by, but he's still standing by his choices because he's trying to flex the John muscle that you know he's trying to follow John and by burying the wolves in the alfalfa field that they'll never be found. I thought that was a very cunning move, and I feel that's something that John would have been like, oh, just you know, we'll just do that. And, you know, no one will ever find them. So I think he's just feeling this acute loss of John, his presence. And again, I'm going to come back to that, you know, that swirling of death, this foreboding, this foreshadowing of some untoward event. Don't know what it is, but I'm just I have this very uneasy feeling every time that something with death comes up around John and Rip is kind of like my conduit for this this feeling of I don't know what's going to happen, but it doesn't look good. It'll be interesting to see where this goes. But right now, yeah, I'm just feeling that he's like a soul lost wandering. He's almost like in purgatory in a way. Yeah, that's fair. And Beth is so distracted. They haven't really focused much on them together. I don't think there's anything wrong between them exactly, but they haven't had a lot of warm moments this season so far. And that could also be it too. He's missing his his other security blanket, just being around as much as she had been. Nice in jail will do that to you. (laughs) (laughs) Beth. Beth. So I guess the the next phase of our discussion will just be Beth and Jamie because they're so intertwined, this episode. I don't know if we want to go here, but (laughs) there is a wrath against outsiders that has started building last season and has really, the, the rhetoric has been really ratcheted up this season. Is that going to turn off or attract more viewers? Is it getting too political? Like I live in a state that has been vilified in this show and it does <laughs> and it does make me feel a certain way about it. I just wanted to get your take on it as sort of a, a state that's neutral in this fight. Yeah, all, all, all Texas has been accused of is producing people that talk funny. But as a place of respect for cowboy legends. Yeah, that's tr- that's right. It was Jimmy's uh, corrective summer camp to come to Texas. <laughs> I didn't think of it as summer camp, but that's essentially yeah. what it was. It's like his outward bound moment. Um, <laughs> you know, I think those kinds of messages will resonate with the audience just fine. You know, I've talked to a couple people that are actually from Montana, and it's funny, they don't watch the show, but I've mentioned that they do have sort of a xenophobic attitude toward people coming in from other states, and they were like, yes, that's real. Um, <laughs> so, so, Well, I mean, like, New Yorkers are an infestation wherever they go. I mean, like, we had a game one time, we had gone to Florida to see friends of ours, And we had a game of asking everybody who we went out, like the bartender or the waitress, wherever we went, like, where are you from? Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York with the top three answers. Like just about everybody. I'm like, is anybody from here? Or are they all from like the tri-state area? (laughs) Yeah. I think the audience is continuing to grow for Yellowstone, which, you know, for a fifth season show is not a given. In fact, a lot of shows start to drop off right about now if they don't keep raising the stakes. It's just an interesting storyline to take because I I just it makes me feel a certain way because I don't think it goes a long way to helping the narrative in the country. And I don't want to get political about this, but like there is a big divide and this us against them or they're different. 
I don't embrace that storyline very well. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable mm -hmm. um, because it sows feelings in people who may not seek other sources of information. Well, people are, whether we want them to be or not, treating entertainment as a source of education. Right. The infotainment world of this. Yes. To a certain extent. But, you know, when you have a show that has so much plot to drive forward, but it still spends, I think that branding scene was like maybe three minutes of just the cowboy stuff without any words. And then another maybe three or four minutes of Rip and the other cowboy talking. Mm -hmm. Um that's a pretty good chunk of this episode that was yeah. really just investing in showing us the cowboy culture and what they do, you know, right, their way of life, moving the herd across the street, stopping traffic, because that's just what happens. There's no other way to do it. Right. I, th I think that you're going to continue to see that stuff. If, if they weren't very sure about who and why they were making this show for, you'd see that stuff start to just taper out. You know, you'd get some shots of the mountains and that would tell us where we are. But the the fact that they keep that stuff in there and spend time on it, like in the inauguration, showing the cowboys playing grab ass with their ropes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't I think they have a different name for it, but yeah. They, they probably me. do. But but still, it, it amounts to guys that aren't, you know, they're not totally used to uh, inauguration uh, parties and ceremonies. And they're not used to... To, uh, Cleaning their fingernails and looking all nice for exactly for the show. Yeah, no, I get you exactly. And so, but were they being? I don't know. Were they running into other people or being totally jackasses about it? No, there's a reason they're cowboys. They have energy to burn off. You know, so that's yeah. what the, that's what they had to do. So the reason that I was asking that is because the, the whole tangent that we just went on about outsiders is because uh, Miss California was the one that uh, Beth got into the fight in the bar with. And we're seeing the aftermath of this bar fight. We found you. Know, so we got again that that she's a Bethany, but she's not a Bethany. She's a Beth. Like I, we did learn that her name was Bethany. And I think that there's there might be something in that, too. Um, she's been very triggered these last two episodes by the past. Last episode, John mentioned her mother and that sent her off into a little bit of a weepy state. I think her mom was part of the reason why her name is Bethany. Well, her mom um, called her Bethany in the couple yes, scenes that's where we the, have them. So. Right. And that's the first time that we learned that her name was Bethany and not some, some other iteration like Elizabeth or something like that. So I feel that that's a very triggering moment for her. I don't know if you noticed her face when the officer came in and said Bethany Dutton. Like her eyes went really wide and she just she looked kind of terrified. You know, I didn't note that, but I'll take your word for it. Yeah, it, it just it was a, such a reaction that I was just like, Ooh, oh, right, Bethany, because the only other time we've heard that was when Mrs. Evelyn Dutton was talking to her on horseback right before she died, talking about being a Bethany. Well, with that scene, is it plausible to you that she still turns the screws on him? On Jamie? Yeah. Like, she needs him. Yeah. You, you She's think? absolutely. She's still browbeating him, even when he's the one that's trying to help her. Not be charged or not be charged, not have Miss California pressing charges. Yeah, but how, how, I mean, how do you rationalize that if you're Beth to even in that situation where you have, where he has to do you a favor, he could let you rot. He could not go in there and convince this girl that the state's going to come down on her if she presses charges, even though that sounds like a pretty optional thing to do. If you're Beth, you think 
Yep, I gotta stay the course. I gotta keep my finger firmly up his ass <laughs> about this. Well, she's got this picture, right? She has this picture of Jamie bringing his dead father to the train station. So I, I believe think you that... mentioned in last year's podcast, you or stuff, that that picture is useless or she's ratting out the entire Dutton <laughs> disposal system. Right. And I think I posted a picture of that on our Facebook group of like what the train station looked like during the day. <laughs> it's <laughs> right. all skeletons, a little cowboy hat here and there. Yes. Well, you you mentioned it earlier, this mutually assured destruction between them. But I think... There's this dynamic between these two where Jamie feels this enormous sense of guilt, which he talks about this episode, and he's genuinely terrified of her. So I feel that her reminding him of this picture, it's almost like she doesn't care if she's outed as seeing him do this there because, you know, she's been ready to go to jail three times already or two times, whatever it's been. So I just don't think that she necessarily cares. And I think he knows that about her, that she would just be like, I don't give a flying, you know what, I'll just do it. I would say he's been a good steward to the family since he had to shoot his father. I think that the advice that he's been giving John these first four episodes has been very good, has been very sound. The logic has been good. And I, th- I feel that what he's doing for Beth is almost above and beyond what she deserves disorderly conduct like she's literally going to be picked like she said i'll be picking up trash with all my free time she's got to do like 30 hours of community service that's nothing right yeah for you know what she ended up doing and he negotiated that he sat he sat with the you know miss california i don't know what her name is Haley, i think it is he sat with her who else would have the attorney general sitting across from you of the state negotiating your charge basically saying that, well, it's a bar fight and you're going to have to be charged equally if you press charges. So he's gone above and beyond for her. And I, I feel that it's just because he's terrified of her. She does have the upper hand, even though it is mutually assured destruction and it would definitely out more people and harm more people than it would help. I'd appreciate if any practicing lawyers were to uh, let us know if, an, if a fight occurring in a bar negates self-defense at all i was interested in that too or was jamie just bluffing because it sounded pretty good and he knew she didn't know better if it's not true he had a very compelling story and his facts were lined up saying you've been drinking you instigated he read from the police report this that would be very calculating on his part which is not outside the realm of jamie he he is very smart we've said this he lacks maybe some of the street smarts But he's best when he's lawyering. This is one of the moments for lawyering. And even though he reviles the person that he was looking out for the interest for, he still did a really good job. Oh, I just I just keep coming back to like, what's his motivation? I think he's terrified of her. And like, you know, Beth has his blackmail to end all blackmail on him. But I'm also wondering, like, does he have other motives here for being this? And I keep saying, you know, like, he's a good steward. His advice has been pretty good up until this point. Is he thinking maybe that he could succeed John as governor, despite the squashing that John gave him in the first episode? That's what I'm thinking, is is that if he bides his time, he knows dad doesn't have two terms in him. Right. If I play my cards right, mind my P's and Q's, yeah, then I make a lot of sense. Voters will see it that way, too. If I'm the AG, I move up, people will just think I'm going to do the same thing Dad did, even though he might right. not. 
and look who's advising me, your prior governor who you all loved. Yeah, presumably. yeah. Presumably. So I think that's got to be his end game. It's just that Beth, she doesn't need to be doing as much as she's doing to keep him in line. Right. And that's what I mentioned earlier, is just that she's going to make it really easy for him to have this crisis again of do I betray or do I not? Or is it going to be a very focused betrayal and it's going to be pointed exactly at her? That's where I think it's going because, you know, Steph and I were talking to earlier this season and um, what the listener who had the comment earlier in this episode said, yeah, he's he's tiring a little too of Beth and Jamie's kind of childish behavior. The slamming of the doors in the governor's, uh, in the Capitol rather, was a little much for me. <laughs> but this episode too, there was this moment between Beth and Jamie where she finds out about the car seat and that he has a baby and it's a boy. And it was, for some reason, it being a boy was very triggering for her as well. And Jamie has this moment where he runs his Jeep really close to her that she has to step off the step into the shoulder. And he had this malicious, mad look in his eye. So like I said earlier, like if he feels ripe for betrayal and it might just be targeted at her. But then he gets caught thinking with his dick later and <laughs> and she is, for you know, this is the bar apparently where the Duttons hang out when they're not fighting. And yeah, she's she, more upscale place. They don't they don't, you know, bash beer bottles at the Deerfield Club. Well, it still had a bathroom in the men's room, which is I don't know. If it's a golf club, I guess. I don't know. They look like a spa to me. Like look like a spa bathroom or yeah. Country club maybe or like s- a, something. Yeah, something. It was it was upscale for sure. All right, I'll go with that. <laughs> but uh yeah, so this information that she is sure to find out because she is resourceful, she will then turn back around on him. Oh, I'm sure. He's s- screwing up his his objectivity here, which dad won't like to hear. If, no. You know, if you're having sex with the opposing counsel. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Talk about a conflict of interest. Exactly right. So she, she keeps the upper hand, but can't count out that, that he could turn this thing physical with her. It, not a great way to go. It's not like winning the argument, but it's it's not losing if she's dead and he's alive. True. But like I said but earlier, else- I don't think they're killing any Dutton kids no, I don't think they're killing anybody, but you know, maybe a well-timed hospitalization, like you said. But there's there's something. There's there's definitely some sort of ratcheting up of the tension, and e- even like the music while Jamie was charging down the road at Beth was it was I listened with headphones, um, so I hear the music and I, I try to get wrapped up in in all of the the sensory that they give us, sight, sound, and and whatnot. You know, even that music was just like it had like I had to like release my shoulders. <laughs> after Beth stepped off to the side because the music itself was even very, very much like, like almost like horror movie, like very, very Jason like is I got very much of a Friday the 13th kind of a vibe from it, that it was, um, it was like that. Well, congratulate uh, Christina Voros with uh, shooting it that way. Cause that, you know, that over the shoulder shot where you see yeah. the, it's a Durango. Oh, what did I say? A Jeep? Yeah, yeah sorry. Same difference. Pardon but me. But her, her head kind of, you know, as she's walking, kind of bobs in and out of the line of sight between the camera yeah. and his vehicle. And, you know, as it, as it like, moves in, you don't see it. Then it moves out. And then it's much closer. Yes. And the music <laughs> gets louder. There's a swell. It's yeah. very well done. Yeah, very well done. But I wanted to ask you, too, about Beth's behavior in general. I'd say, like, this season in particular. 
Do you think her behavior is escalating? Because this lady, Miss California, was never going to actually woo Rip. He would never have done anything. Was it truly necessary for her to go full psycho on this woman? No, she's losing her her shit. Yeah, and then her finding about Jamie's baby, I just feel like her grips on reality are just... And then Summer moving back into the house. I just, I feel like Beth is ripe for some sort of a, a break. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a decent call. What got her to the point where she was willing to go to guns with, <laughs> with Miss California? She drinks a lot, so I don't believe that, that was totally an obscene amount of alcohol that led to that lack of impulse control. You're I right. I definitely believe it lowers her inhibitions. Yeah, sure. And you're right that that Rip wasn't going to do anything with this woman, even if Beth had not been there or anything. Rip was not a flight risk on, on this deal. No, so <laughs> not being close to that edge of what makes you okay with hitting another person is kind of a buildup of emotional distress it's not just like that one thing even though she you know she's proven she is a little more unbalanced than than the rest of us but still she's not hitting people usually not usually not usually and she's more tactical with it well like a bottle on someone's head is a kind of a big deal you know um yeah but like last remember it was several seasons ago now like with the woman that was it was last season with carter and the and the jeans shop. And, oh, yeah. And uh, she, the phone. The yeah. phone. But that was still just property destruction. But again, you're putting your hands on somebody else. Yeah. 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 But the, still, this is a bottle. This is uh Right. Like you said, a big deal. Aggravated assault. This is a big deal. Um, <laughs> so you're right. Something was pushing her closer that we may not have gotten the full picture on. You know, We know that she was helping John with his campaign. She's very close to the surface with this Jamie baby business. And like the last season, we know that she was, you know, lamenting with Rip that she would never be able to give him a kid and feeling bad about that. And we had that flashback last episode where she felt bad about how she treated him as a teenager and she mm-hmm. apologized for that. So maybe we're supposed to get that there's a lot of that kind of stuff swirling around in, in Beth's head still. Hysterectomy stuff is never going away. It's always front. Right. She's never getting past that trauma. No. And whatever the feeling is she's having with her, I think combining all that, maybe if she's normally riding around at about a seven, maybe she was up to a nine. And <laughs> that lady was just in the wrong in terms place. Of her unhingedness. Yeah, to tick her up to 10. Yeah. Why doesn't Jamie want John to know about his child? It's almost like he kept the whole Garrett portion away from John. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Like him buying that little ranch and trying to have this semi-independent life. Even though it's weird because it's an adopted grandchild, but it's still his. And so much else of him is wrapped up in his dad or John. So I don't know. Does that make does that make any sense? Because he because he seems to want some of that independence, but but he can't get it anywhere. He can't even be a, alone with John. He has to have Beth as a as a chaperone. Um, right. So Beth's always hanging around. He owes everything else to John. He wants to feel independent, and this kid kind of gives him some aspect that isn't John related. 
I, I think that's a really good assessment. I was I was just wondering too if he just wants to keep the baby away from John because he's afraid of the Beth angle mm. that she's threatened in the past. That you know she's you know going to take away any happiness that he ever has, and and she forthrightly says this episode that she's going to take that baby away from him and make him childless essentially that's what makes me fear for her at jamie's hand regardless yeah, of the well, consequences but this is, yeah but this is where you're getting to now you're getting into you know jamie's a dad you get the the papa bear gene that gets activated and he has a very high streak for self-preservation we've seen that with the reporter back in season two i believe Season two? I think that's right. I feel like it's season two, if I'm not, apologies. But the reporter, you know, he's able to manipulate situations to further his own goals and make it look pretty decent. So his, like I said, his self-preservation streak is high in and of itself. Add in the layer of his child and the threat now to that child. John isn't safe for Jamie because he trusts Beth above and beyond anybody else, it seems. And I'd say even higher than Casey. And he tolerates her shenanigans where a lot of other people would have just been like, enough already, woman. And John's even done that to a certain extent, but it's never kind of followed up or followed through with whatever needs to be done to kind of check Beth the right way. So it just worries me that he doesn't trust John enough to keep the fact that he has um adopted grandchild or yeah, I guess it would be well, it's not really an adopted grandchild, but his son, his adopted son's child, the non-biological grandchild. I'm sorry, I'm failing on the words here. I think John would be very hurt to find out about this kid. He might understand very, it, but I think he'd still be very hurt. Be very hurt to be delayed in being told about yeah, him. Yeah, I still. I yeah, think so. okay. Yes, I I agree with that because I think at John's core, he values his family above anything else. He just doesn't know how to show it in a very healthy way. I just think that that's where Jamie's kind of coming from. That that John values Beth kind of above everybody else and can't be trusted with that information because Beth is just so unhinged when it comes to Jamie. And also. John knows what transpired between Beth and Jamie. So, you know, that loyalty has been tested. And, you know, Jamie doesn't come out so good in, in John's eyes in, in any of these situations. So so that's where I was kind of thinking that he's just more afraid of John having Beth so close to his inner circle that nobody can be trusted with the information. It makes me very uneasy for, for what's coming in the next, I say, next two to three episodes. Now, it could be just a simple explanation that mom is boss mom said you don't get to tell anybody about this you get to see him whenever i say it's okay because you don't officially exist as far as this kid's concerned on paperwork so right yeah this is just between us or until i decide to uh make it known that you have a bastard child (laughs) 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 i guess that that term isn't popular anymore but do you think that that would be a sticking point with john that it is considered a bastard child and it has the name Dutton. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like you yep. think that, I think that would be a source of pride hurt on John's part. Yeah. I think John would want to get that squared away. Yeah. Yeah. I think he, he's like a, a traditionalist in that sense of the word. Yeah. I think so. So when is and the maybe wedding? that's why. Right. <laughs> that's what, that's what his next question would be. Yeah. 
did you make an honest woman of her? Right. I just feel like that's coming. At the end of the episode, when Beth met her her morning match anyway with Summer, the busy beaver, she go <laughs> she, she goes and uh, and sits on the porch for a second, and off in the distance. What do we see? We see blues and reds in the sky, and we also see something. Is that clouds or is that smoke? I couldn't decide if it was clouds or smoke. I, so I watched the episode a couple of times, and, and I can see both. It's dark gray, but it's not it's black. It's dark gray. So, like, it's sunrise, right? So yeah. sun, the sun is coming up, so there there's always a play on the clouds in terms of color, I think her looking off in the distance, I kind of want to say it's fire, it's smoke, that it's a, it's a, a metaphor for the smoldering fire within her. Yeah. And either way, even if it is clouds, those are dark clouds. So either way, I don't feel like it, it's a, a very welcoming sense. As pretty as the sunrise behind it was, I, I had a very ominous feeling of where episode five opens up. Well, I know that you guys usually split out the discussion of the preview. Yeah, we t- we typically give like a little like cuz some people don't like to be spoiled in any way even though a preview is not really a spoiler. It's but... what they shared with us about yes. the episode. <laughs> yes. All of us. All of us. So we get the preview then of next week's episode and it doesn't look very If you don't want to be spoiled, this is the time to hit pause. <laughs> this one doesn't look particularly gubernatorial or political. And it doesn't look like there's a forest fire, um, which no. is what made me reconsider the idea that there's a fire off in the distance. Because a fire close enough that you could see it like that seems like kind of a big deal. Like, right. That that would be sort of consuming, not to use a pun again. It'd be um, national news, right? Yeah. That close to Yellowstone Park. So I don't think it's a forest fire. I don't think it's a forest fire. But also in Yellowstone themselves, like there was this massive fire that took out several hundred thousand acres in like 1988 or something like that and i went in 2012 and they were still talking about that forest fire and mm-hmm. they talk and as you're driving through the park especially in the wyoming entrance so the southern the southern entrance you see all of that devastation so yes this would be international news in terms of like an environmental disaster but your comment about the gubernatorial thing, there's a comment, something where we have to show them the way we do things or, or something right. that everybody's mounted up, including John, and he's not On in On horseback suit. with yeah. guns, it looks like a blaze <laughs> or about to be. So someone needs a lesson. And there's also a little bit of a flashback scene. We see Josh Lucas make an appearance in the preview for next week. So some lesson from the past is going to make itself known in the present. Yes. Looks like more Beth. Summer's not her favorite season yeah, ad- anymore. Advising against uh, having Summer around. Now, is this part of just her natural dislike for Summer? Is it rooted in some sort of good, solid reasoning? Uh, is it something that'll come to pass later, like with my possible prophecy earlier that Summer might be a detriment when it comes to yeah, discuss not on the, the side of John, right? the wolves? Um We'll see, but that might also just help fray Beth even further. You know, the presence of Summer when she's already barely keeping it together. And then there's also this this moment of Markwood Equities. We can do what we want from Sarah. So, you know, there's going to be that wrinkle as well. Boning Sarah 
is, I think, leading right to that comment. She's going yeah. to have something on him immediately. Oh, she's going to use this completely against him and to her advantage. And I, I'm frankly looking forward to it. But <laughs> Anyhow, I've enjoyed chatting uh, Yellowstone with you. We have gone to 104 minutes. Oh, uh, my Lord. Yeah, so we'll, well edit you know, that we... down a smidge, but still it'll yeah, be a little long. But... It's been a good discussion, I think. I think this was a really important episode for the Beth and Jamie dynamic and and finding out about his baby and and that cliffhanger from season four now getting resolved is going to be a very interesting way for the season to continue forward. And then also with Casey making his choice. I I keep coming back to that. That vision has um, it's rocked me in ways that, you know, I'm just like, what does this mean to the show and its core? Yeah, Casey's the most important Dutton kid. I'm positive of that. And we're of... seeing the least of him, and it's frustrating. Yes. yes. <laughs> so I'm hoping that some of that changes, too. And I'm hoping that Monica finds some sort of way forward here, because I'm I'm also worried about her. She's She's taken it on the chin several times, even literally, in this show. Oh, every time that she gets a head wound, I'm like, don't we remember what happened to her in season... Like one or two? One. She, she gets knocked out at school. Yeah, season one. Yes, that's right. And she's knocked out. at Yeah, she's punched by a, a teenager at school. Yeah. And she's, Monica's another source of worry for me. But, she needs um, a little time where her son isn't crying under the bed or she's losing a baby or recovering from a head wound. She needs just a little normal time. Or home time. invaders. Or, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm she okay needs, with that. Just release the drama off of her a little bit. I'm okay with it. Yes, that. pull it back a little bit from Monica. She needs a break. But I want to say thank you very much for joining me for this episode. Hopefully, Steph will be back next week. But if not, I would be very happy to chat with you again about this. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I love this show, and I love talking about TV, especially with other people that love talking about TV with the depth and knowledge that I do, which is not what I run into in everyday life. So if, 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 I'm, if called upon, I will be there. Just want to say, if you guys listening, if you can head over to wherever you get this podcast from to rate, review, and subscribe, five stars are very helpful for the show and helping others find it as well. We greatly appreciate you and your subscribing. And if you have any comments, if you want to have any questions answered, you know, we've been happy to answer those questions here in the podcast. Be sure to reach out. Uh, you can get us on Twitter at Pod Clubhouse, on Instagram, on Facebook at PodClubhouse.com. We, we got all the th- all the things, all the sites, Pod Clubhouse. You can find us there. Thanks so much for listening. This is Sheila. And this is Paul. And this is the Yellowstone podcast from Pod Clubhouse. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.